0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz. We're joined, as always, by Dmitry Kaly uh, It's a big week of news. Of course, a lot of things have going on. Unfortunately, we've seen the beginning of what appears to be the forced expulsion of the canonical church from the Kiev Caves, Lavra, in Ukraine. In America, this week, we also saw the horrendous shooting of a Christian school by a radical transgender psychopath, which, you know, really kind of shows it's... It's really just a stark understanding of the world we're in with this kind of insane acts of violence happening in the West or areas that supposedly aren't at war. And then we see areas that are at war descending into spiritual evil as well. So it's quite the testament to the world we live in today. On that somber note, uh, Dimitri, how are you?
1: Doing well, Conrad. Uh, it's great to you know be here again on another week of World War Now, and of course we're already deep into 2023. Some pretty exciting news to speak about today. Um, obviously not as negative as we thought last week. We did report that you know there'd be some pretty negative developments, but things haven't turned out as bad as uh, I don't know as we'd first I suppose proposed. Uh, in which case, I suppose let's just get into it and break it down for you.
0: Yeah, we are going to talk about not just what actually occurred in the monastery, in the lava with the government, with Metropolitan Pavel having, as of this recording, been assigned to house arrest and given an ankle monitor. We're also going to review a big list of hierarchs, Orthodox bishops, patriarchates around the world that have strongly stood with the canonical church in Ukraine, repudiated the Ukrainian government, and have you know, made it very clear that they not only want nothing to do with the what the schismatics are doing in their expulsion project, but they don't want anything to do with the orthodox that are remaining silent and are supporting them. So, Dmitry, I'm going to pull that list up if you want to let everybody know what has actually occurred on the ground in the Lavra.
1: Yeah, of course. So publicly speaking, um, some Ukrainian officials have shown up to the Lavra um, at the beginning of this weekend. It was a few days ago at the end of March when the deadline did come up. And, uh, you know, this commission that showed up to the Lavra to essentially get some documents from the monks, it was stopped by the laity who actually stood there at the gates and prevented any of these uh, Ukrainian government officials from entering into the monastery. Now, uh, uh, ostensibly the, the the mayorship of Kiev, as well as some of the you know, officials sent by the Ukrainian parliament, didn't frankly uh, end up pushing the monks out of the monastery just yet. And some of the public demonstrations, uh, at least by the monks, by the uh, students of the Kiev Theological Seminary there, these are young, usually young Orthodox Ukrainian men uh, between the age of 20 and 40, just showing up. Some of them holding really, really large Ukrainian flags, kind of showing their allegiance to the Ukrainian state, as well as the Orthodox Church claiming that, look, we're not actually siding with Russia. We are citizens of Ukraine. We haven't betrayed our country. We were just here serving the faithful of this country and, you know, kind of studying orthodoxy here. Please don't kick us out of the monastery. Don't kick us out of the seminary. So you had this, these large public demonstrations throughout the end of March here. And uh, frankly, the Ukrainian government has kind of eased off, I want to say, positively speaking. Uh, There hasn't been any proclamation, at least from Zelensky, from Klishko or any of the uh, officials, say, speakers of the Ukrainian political World at the moment. Commenting on the Lavra, although of course plenty of articles have circulated amongst Western media sources as well as domestic Ukrainian sources, claiming that look, uh, the monks in the Lavra are still pro-Russian. They're still Russian separatist-minded. Uh, so negative comments are still being forced upon these monks. You know, they're being painted in a negative light. But the local Kiev Orthodox folks have really brought it this uh, at the end of the March this year, and I think it's uh, these are the fruits that are being being shown to us. Are uh, the only i would say main negative uh of course event that has taken place besides the various provocateurs and satanists and weird uh, azov related people folks with tattoos folks with dark face masks showing up to the monastery kind of there, not really causing a ruckus no there are no attacks in kiev at the moment it's all very peaceful which is a super positive development and very frankly unexpected i thought we would see like almost a A government pogrom, you know, upon the Orthodox Christians in Kiev, but so far it's been very restrained. But yes, the main negative event that has taken place was the uh, Metropolitan of the Kiev Caves, the caretaker of the caves. His name was Metropolitan Pavel, which translates to Paul. So Metropolitan Pavel was the leader of the Ukrainians of the Kiev Monastery, and he was uh, taken in by Ukrainian police officers just less than 24 hours ago, actually, as of the recording of this episode, so second of 1st to 2nd of April, and an ankle bracelet was placed around him, and he was detained, and uh, placed under house arrest. Now, not sure where his literal uh, house is, who probably uh, he's listed as being, um, as, as a resident of the monastery, so in fact, he'll most likely return to the monastery with the ankle bracelet, and he's being actively tracked by, uh, by the Ukrainian police, as well as probably Ukrainian feds, Ukrainian federal agents, the SBU as they're called. Um, so besides that, nothing really has taken place. But of course, it is quite disturbing seeing uh, an Orthodox Metropolitan, you know, lifting up his uh, his pant like that, you know, them sticking the bracelet onto him. It does bring back uh, these memories of, say, communist uh, communist persecution of the Orthodox Church. Very, very uh, unsavory, to say the least.
0: Well, and as the... It was still at the very end of the service before the blessing was given. Metropolitan Pavel was arrested and the masked agents escorted him out of the church, and he had his acolytes accompany him, and he said that, you know, these men here come here to escort me away like angels, you know, pray for them and everything. I've I, i, I I've longed to suffer for Christ my whole life, so Metropolitan Pavel is displaying very saintly behavior, you know, he's, he's not showing any fear in the face of this, which, again, like, you know, people have been so kind of propagandized with media that people are like, oh, you know, in these situations it's easy to make a thing out of it, but you know, it's, it it can be scary in these situations, and to show fear and to show that would also then instill fear in you know thousands of believers and women and children who, you know, or have their men having been forcibly recruited into a war zone. So it's so important to display this this strength and this joy of, in Christ even in the midst of this persecution. But we can also we also saw the the provocateurs outside the monastery were confronted by a massively bearded priest who ended up dousing some of them entirely in holy water, which. I think was was pretty hilarious i don 't know if you have anything to say about that before I start reading some of these some of these quotes from world orthodoxy
1: no, I think as the holy water was sprinkled upon the faces of the uh, provocateurs outside of the Kiev cave monastery, um you did see a lot of people like cringe or at least like lash back in fear or you know they kind of um it's almost i mean it's just simply blessed water here at this point, but it really negatively affected some of them, and you could almost uh feel as, as we know from the stories of the saints and from what orthodox priests will tell you demons do fear holy water and when possessed people are affected by it it does make them repel so uh, this sort of display that these foreign journalists as well as some of the provocateurs with very strange occult tattoos kind of you know uh, turning their backs towards the priests kind of jumping away in fear as the holy water touches their skin. And of course, for an orthodox person, I wish I could be sprinkled with holy water every day of the week. You know, it would be fantastic. But unfortunately, uh, we don't always have those those blessings uh, close to us. We don't all live at monasteries. But to an orthodox person, holy water is a blessing to the possessed and those involved with the demonic powers of the world. It is a
0: curse. You know, we'll have some of those videos linked below, but going to get into some of this to really drive home the point that the true Orthodox deposit, the Episcopacy, you know, those guided by the Holy Spirit, those given the authority to bind and loose, are with the canonical church in Ukraine. This list was compiled, a lot of it, by Patriarch Prime, Caleb of Atlanta, so thank you to him for this. But the first one I want to read is from Patriarch John X of Antioch, my patriarch, who... In my diocese, we're still commemorating because we still haven't enthroned our new metropolitan and we haven't even enthroned our new bishop of our diocese. So we're very we're in a very big state of turnover here. But Patriarch John wrote to Metropolitan on a free. With great pain of heart, we observe from afar the persecution that you and your holy church are enduring for the sake of Christ. While we are physically a long distance away from you, we are near to you in spirit, and we extend our hand to you at this dark hour. You and your flock are in our constant prayers as we implore the Lord for the quick cessation of this tragic war and the end of all threats to your holy church. Uh, This was, you know, so the entire Patriarchate of Antioch really, you know, has shown a lot of support for the canonical church, for the Russian church in the midst of the schism with with Constantinople. So I'm very encouraged being part of the Antiochian church myself. Of course, the Patriarchate of Jerusalem, has stood very strong in this regard. Uh, Archbishop Theodosius of Sebastia explicitly stated, we demand the end of the systematic persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, as subjected to by the rulers of Kiev. We consider the persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as persecution of the whole church, where there are threats of evacuating bishops, fathers, and monks from the lawfare of the monastery in Kiev, which is the ancient historical administration associated with all of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine. He goes on for a while, but... You know, he was speaking on behalf of the entire Jerusalem Patriarchate. There, we have many other Rokor and uh, Moscow Patriarchate bishops who've spoken out about this. Metropolitan Jonah Pafhausen, being our Rokor bishop retired in America, one of the prominent examples. He says we would like to express our support, respect, and love for His Beatitude Metropolitan Nifri of Kiev and his Brotherhood of the Monastery of the Caves, which is at the cradle of the Orthodox faith in Kiev and Rus. The monks of our Brotherhood make before you a deep bow. And from the depths of our hearts, we assure you of our prayers, our support, and concern in the difficult situation you must navigate at this time. Those who don't know, Metropolitan Jonah is the abbot of a monastery in Pennsylvania, who we know a lot of the people that Jim Jatris has been on our show. He attends Metropolitan Jonah's parish. There's many other words from Metropolitan Nicholas. uh, The head of Rokor has spoken out, of course, in favor of the monks of the Lavra. His Eminence Mark, the Metropolitan of Berlin and Germany has stated it is with pain that we are compelled to report on new persecutions of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Suspected of a lack of loyalty to her state and people, she is subjected to brutal searches, her properties being confiscated, and new laws threatened to entirely ban her very existence, despite her centuries-long history, her contribution to the spiritual development of the nation, and despite the millions of citizens who are her members.
1: And what's interesting is the what I really like, uh, this address of the Patriarchate of Georgia, you know, headed by, of course, His Holiness and Beatitude, Catholicos Patriarch of All Georgia, Ilya. So Patriarch Ilya of Georgia did send a direct letter, not just to Metropolitan Anufri and the Ukrainian church, or to the United Nations, but directly to the Ecumenical Patriarch, asking him to at least mediate this current, uh, you know, state of affairs, because he has met up with Zelensky, he's met up with the previous president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, so he knows actually from where the roots kind of stem. Uh, Patriarch Ilya recognizes that Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople is perhaps uh, one of the, I suppose, he's the nexus of, of this uh, particular issue in the church and this ecclesiastical disease. So he, in fact, addresses the His Holiness Patriarch Bartholomew directly, and he says, "Look." He just says, uh, I greet you with eternal love in Christ and address you regarding the following issue. First of all, we'd once again love to express our deep uh, heartache caused by the Russian-Ukrainian war, which is taking the lives of soldiers who defend their homeland and thousands of innocent people. And he moves on to mention just that Metropolitan Anufri has done everything in his power to disassociate himself from the conflict, or at least taking a particular side in the conflict, and beyond praying, of course, for the Ukrainian people as a sort of national uh, citizenry. Metropolitan Onufri hasn't, frankly, stated anything pro-Russian over the conflict. And I can attest to that. Metropolitan Onufri has gone, and this is speaking from myself, uh, Dmitry Kalyagin here, I, I can attest that Metropolitan Onufri has taken a very pro-Ukrainian stance over the entirety of the conflict, even maybe more than I would have liked myself. And some of the Metropolitans and Bishops of Russia, there are also perplexed at the just how pro-Ukrainian Metropolitan Onufri has been, to the point where he has, in fact, even supported the, uh, you know, he's he's asked President Putin directly in 2022 for the release of the Azov neo-Nazi pagans from Azov Stahl during the siege of Mariupol. So, you know, there were these pro-Ukrainian addresses from him, but in fact, notice how None of this has softened the blow of the uh, NATO-driven hammer upon the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, and now the Kiev caves are being affected, now the bishops are being um, sanctioned individually, they're being taken into custody straight out of the service, as Conrad mentioned, uh, Metropolitan Pavel, and it's it's getting quite bad. Now, page, the newly, of course, the I suppose the fresh patriarch of Serbia, Porphyria, Porphyria, so Porphyria uh, did address the Ukrainian Orthodox situation quite strongly. He's uh, probably the, the newest. I, I believe he is the most uh, recent, recently elected patriarch of the, all the local churches, and he did address the church in uh, a very strong fashion. Of course, the Serbian church remains to be one of the more conservative Orthodox churches around the world, and his positions have always been uh, incredibly um, enlightening, at least for those who... Kind of seek a, a more neutral to more conservative stance, you know, amongst all the hierarchs of the church. And he does bring in some history as well, where he says the behavior of the Ukrainian state's leadership testifies that it is true, and probably that it's true, and, ult, and probably ultimate goal is the destruction of historical memory and all traces of the original Orthodoxy in Ukraine, in order to change its code and historical identity, which the church has created in patience and torment, preserving for centuries from the Holy Prince Vladimir to the present day. Feeling and knowing that the only existing Orthodox Church in Ukraine headed by Metropolitan and of Kiev carries its cross of courage and humility, hopefully ascending to Golgotha, uh, both Christ Golgotha and its own. We are certain that the crucified and resurrected Lord, thanks to deep faith, forgiveness and love for everyone, including those who have become its enemies by their own choice, will grant his church the strength to endure all the incumbent sufferings that it can bear. So the patriarch of Serbia has already kind of not made up his mind, but he has come to the conclusion that... Tribulations are unavoidable at this point. The Ukrainian governance has made up its mind. The government of Ukraine will continue to prosecute the Orthodox in Ukraine, regardless of how many uh, white, uh, or, or, sorry, yellow and blue flags will be, you know, taken outside. Uh, no matter who shows allegiance to the Ukrainian state, the state's goals are different, and they're not seeking to, um, you know, assist the Orthodox Christians in any capacity. It's it's persecution, and it's being turned on full force. And I do like. The Patriarch of Serbia's um, comparison, of Metropolitan Anufry and the various Orthodox Christians to Christ himself ascending, uh, you know, uh, Calvary and Golgotha, the mount on, upon which he was crucified. Because this is a very apt comparison, and it's very Christian of him, because uh, the tribulations awaiting the Orthodox Church in Ukraine are quite harsh, regardless of the easements which have been given this coming week. In this past week. So, so there are some pretty good uh, statements here in Patriarch Prime's article. And I think generally, it, we will have a link to it for everybody to have a read of all the citations, the citations and excerpts for, for themselves. I think it's worth doing to kind of see the union of the church around Metropolitan and Onufri and the the correct Orthodox path through this particular issue.
0: Well, and I think it's important you mentioned the Patriarchate of Serbia, and they're going to come out really strong on this because We mentioned in our previous episode what's going on in Lithuania, how, you know, the Patriarch of Constantinople is undoubtedly the behest of the State Department, trying to cleave another little area, a lot smaller than Ukraine this time, but just away from the Russian church due to political propagandization of the local population and, you know, NGO money flowing in. But Serbia is, you know, they've been an attempted victim of that with Montenegro. There's a schismatic group there that the EP has hinted at. They may try to do what they did in Ukraine and perhaps grant them a tomos of autocephaly, as well as the Macedonian issue, which thankfully has in and of itself proven the ecumenical patriarchate wrong in its ecclesiology and that they've accepted their tomos of autocephaly from Serbia and not the ecumenical patriarchate, which, you know, is really not making Constantinople happy. But they've, the EP has been agitating there too to have them be, you know, more influenced by them than by, you know, their own local autonomy. So the Patriarchate of Serbia has a really vested interest in maintaining that ecclesiology from the canonical perspective where it's not legitimate that the EP goes around setting up new jurisdictions because they see themselves directly in that line of fire. And Metropolitan Joan Ikihe of Montenegro has been one of these bishops that's issued a strong statement praying for his Beatitude Metropolitan and the Free and what they're going for. We, of course, also see the Patriarchate of Bulgaria having issued statements, which is one of the autonomous churches. Uh, We see multiple Greek and Cypriot bishops, uh, Metropolitan Seraphim of Kithira, a Greek bishop, has strongly stated that the Greek Synod needs to explicitly condemn the persecution and stand with the UOC which is interesting considering that technically the Greek church recognizes the OCU as the canonical church in Ukraine. And of course, we have Metropolitan Neophytos, as usual, making fantastic statements saying, There are 140 relics in the Lavra, many relics in the catacombs, where everything began a thousand years ago, where Slavic orthodoxy begins, with St. Theodosius and Anthony. And now this Satanist Zelensky comes there, and what does he say? Let 200 monks of the Lavra leave, and the Ministry of Culture will take care of this place. And we will make this place a tourist place so that tourists fill everything there which, you know, is very similar to things that we've talked about on this show. And, you know, a lot of bishops have come out, the Metropolitan Neophytos, he's been talking about this since day one, among other things. So it's always important, I think, to listen to what to what he has to say. The Albanian Church, surprisingly, directly under the EP itself, has strongly come out in favor of the canonical church against the schismatics, against the persecution, which is very encouraging. Uh, the Polish Orthodox Church, of course, another autocephalous church, has come out in support of the Canonical Church, the Orthodox Church of the Czech lands in Slovakia, the smallest autocephalous church in Holy Orthodoxy. Of course, there, Archbishop Michael of Prague has come out in support of the UOC. The OCA, of course, Metropolitan Tikhon and many other bishops have come out in support. So, you know, the autocephalous church in America. So this is, again, this is basically everybody. Notice who we haven't named is Patriarch Bartholomew himself, Elpida Foros, the Archbishop of America, and the Greeks. Of course, uh, Dimitri, you said that the Patriarch of Serbia is the newest Patriarch. He's the second newest Patriarch, of course, after Archbishop George of Paphos, everybody's favorite new schismatic supporter, who, of course, has not issued anything in support of the canonical church. Of course, the Patriarch of Alexandria has also not issued support. I haven't checked if any of his bishops have individually, but have, as of the recording of the show, I have not heard anything. The Jerusalem Patriarchate, when you're also including Metropolitan Neophytos and Metropolitan Nikiforos and a few other Cypriot bishops, and the Greek bishops we mentioned, of course, on this, stand alone in their support of the canonical church as far as the Hellenic world is concerned, which is unfortunate. And we know that many, many, many Greek priests and laity, even in Goarch under Elpidophoros, are strong supporters of Metropolitan Nefri, Metropolitan Pavel, and the canonical church. But this really does show you that you know, Orthodoxy actually hasn't been united around something like this in a very long time. So maybe out of this persecution, we can get some unity and maybe even some resolution to some of these issues that have been, you know, plaguing world Orthodoxy for some decades now.
1: That's right. And I think most of the churches recognize that what we're seeing here is this new form of 21st century martyrdom with a lot of social media coverage, perhaps not outright killing, but at least at this point, harassment and intimidation being at the forefront of the persecution tactics tactics used by the servants of the devil and in whichever form they may take, you know, the form of Zelensky or the form of some sort of uh, neo-Nazi pagans in Ukraine. But nevertheless, the churches do recognize that, and there is this unity of orthodoxy. Besides, as Conrad mentioned, the small minority of mostly Greek bishops from around the Mediterranean and the Americas who don't uh, particularly see eye to eye with Metropolitan Onufri and the Entirety of the Russian Church, but that minority is very small. And in fact, what these events have shown is that the Orthodox Church is united around just a, a kind of around itself. There is a unity. There is a certain conciliar uh, idea that look, the martyrdom is the lifeblood of the Church, and we are witnessing it today. And we should all uh, stand up and support, even if we can't help directly. You know, because what influence made must could the Church even have upon these services of the devil who don't take the words of its hierarchs? all due seriousness. I mean, consider just the even Metropolitan Pavel of the Caves, who directly said to the president, he stated, and this was about three days ago, he says, I tell you, pan president and your entire pack, our tears will not fall to the ground. They will fall on your head. Do you think that having come into power on our backs, you can do this? The Lord will not forgive you or your family. So, Metropolitan Pavel essentially almost places this, uh, I guess, this conditional curse on Zelensky and his uh, PAC, which is probably his cabinet, his political party, those in Ukrainian politics supporting Zelensky directly. And Metropolitan Pavel is saying, look, you guys came to power in Ukraine through your claim, proclaim proclamations that you're here to support a peaceful, united Ukraine, but in fact what you have initiated is an unheard of, unprecedented persecution of Orthodox Christianity in a liberal democratic country, which we haven't seen prior to this. This is probably the first iteration of a so-called liberal Western democratic country actually persecuting Orthodoxy. It's a new kind of demonic phase of liberal democracy. Of course, theoretically, we all saw it and Seraphim Rose wrote about it, but we haven't seen it yet. And Ukraine, unfortunately, is paving the way towards this. And a similar, of course, curse and a straight-up anathematization occurred from Metropolitan, uh, was given by Metropolitan Luke of Zaporozhia, now uh, stationed in Melitopol, who also, of course, came out in a statement in this article by um, Patriarch Prime, stating that, you know, he does support his leading hierarch, Metropolitan Onufrian. Metropolitan Luke of Zaporozhia is perhaps one of the strongest and most conservative hierarchs of the Ukrainian church, of whom there are about forty-five bishops. So you must consider that the Ukrainian Church, in its size, is so big. It's there are more bishops in Ukraine than there are in the entire Antiochian Church, the entire Georgian Church. Probably, it's probably a size larger than, say, the Georgian Church and the Antiochian Church combined. It's a very, a very big space, and there are many millions of Orthodox Christians. They all need proper administration, priests, bishops, etc. So just the fact that all of this nonsense is occurring in the heartland of Eastern European Orthodoxy is, of course, incredibly detrimental.
0: And you mentioned Georgia. I want to, before we move on, I want to talk about that, that it's just incredible. I think people need to realize that how the Georgian church and ultimately the Georgian people have stood so strongly alongside canonical orthodoxy against the schism, against, you know, what the EP has been doing, considering the only connection that Georgia really has with Russia at all is through the church. And we've said before how Patriarch Ilya is the most popular figure in general in Georgia of anybody, being the most popular kind of national figure in any country by statistics. He is the only one really maintaining kind of an open dialogue with Russia, with Patriarch Kirill, with Putin himself. And because of this, the church is called like the seed of Russian influence in Georgia. And people think, oh, if it wasn't for the church in Georgia, Georgia would be full NATO Zog state and everything like that. Well, that just kind of gives away the game because Patriarch Ilya is not some Russophile. He's not some Russian agent. He's a living saint who has helped save the Georgian birth rate and will likely probably be canonized within 50 years after his death. But I think just showing that. To be accused of a Russian agent, all one has to do is just uphold orthodoxy, you know, should really help anybody on the fence about the persecutions in Ukraine figure it out, because sticking with basic orthodoxy, with the canons, with basic, in some cases even theology when it comes to, you know, the recordings of Epiphany, talking about what he's going to do for LGBT stuff, you know, this stuff is becoming quote-unquote, you know, Russophilia, like you're a Russian agent for just being orthodox, so... I think it's important for people to maintain those ideas because, you know, the Georgian Church is honestly even resisting a lot of pressure doing this because the amount of U.S. energy we've discussed in the kind of, you know, pseudo-color revolution Georgia recently had, you know, it's being very much fortified as a bastion of of NATO and globo homo energy. So it's it's very valuable that the Georgian Church has maintained tradition in its own ways and has been a beacon of... Good ecclesiology and good theology and praxis for the rest of the world. I think that's that's something extremely valuable that that we can never underestimate. And again, we don't know. It's hard to judge because the mainstream media in the world is never really going to respond to this. The best we kind of get is two minutes on Tucker Carlson talking about this stuff, and then maybe our views get some, our posts get a decent amount of views on Elon Twitter, and we can hope that that can only maximize prayer. But we talked about some prophecies you've talked about all those sorts of things and we can again at best we can only hope that you know this the peak of this persecution it may get worse here in the next few weeks but we we seem to have some evidence that it actually gets a lot better afterwards so you know we can only pray and hope
1: yeah that's right and of course just based on the uh based on patriarch Ilya and of Metropolitan new notice how they're both in in the same fashion being accused of being russian agents even though they're in separate countries that is the throw around that gets you know tossed by pro-Western, pro-NATO sources that, hey, if, you, if you're if you siding with Russia or if you're neutral kind of on the Russian question, you are accused of being a Russian agent and all your statements, all your deeds afterwards somewhat tainted. I, I do quickly just want to mention a, a prophecy, which we spoke about in the earlier weeks of World War Now uh, last year, but just the prophecy of Elder Zasimov Donetsk, who was one of the local Ukrainian saints actually passing away in 2002, so over 21 years ago at this point, before the Iraq War after... So this is kind of the timeline here. And he he was born in 1944, so he lived quite a long life. But a lot of his clairvoyant prophecies were going around the internet, most of them relating to his homeland. So Donetsk, Donbass, and Ukraine as a whole. And he speaks a lot in his prophecies about the union of the Russian and Ukrainian church, how the Russian, Belarusian, and generally Russian people need to be united around orthodoxy. And there should not be any separatism, uh, of course, no war, conflict. And he does say that tribulations will come if people of the Ukrainian land are continue to be sinful. and he said this 20 years ago, and now of course the fruits are um, coming to, you know, a ripening at this point. So, but the prophecy goes as uh, as follows, i'm paraphrasing here, uh the Kiev-Pechersk Lavra will fall. All the grace of the Kiev-Pechersk Lavra will go to Optina Desert, which is Optina pustin in Russian. It's a great monastery in Russia, probably one of the largest largest monasteries there in Russia at the moment. And he says, I will not live to see this, but you will see it. He was talking to one of his uh, attendees, most likely a nun who were his caretakers at the time towards his death. So this was, prophecy was given in the 90s. And frankly, uh, 20 years later, and then we see for the first time, the Kiev Petresk Lavra is being openly attacked and provocatively so put to flame and essentially criticized in mass media in ukraine and we have authorities showing up to the doorstep perhaps this prophecy will come to pass i'm not sure but just wanted to kind of pass this on to you uh my listeners and supporters of of the channel that you know what we say here and our some of our some of our concerns are justified in that orthodox saints have spoken about these ukrainian issues decades before they have taken place so um let's pray that god kind of uh doesn't you know? Doesn't judge us too harshly, and doesn't judge the Ukrainian people too harshly, and uh, does not allow for these great tribulations to come to pass. At least, from based on what the words of the saints have told us. So, it's a, it's a little bit scary, but we do you know these prophecies are given to us for us to be aware of what could happen in the worst case scenarios. I suppose at least for our long term betterment. So let us be aware.
0: And you mentioned Optina Pustyn. We have, if you will, listen to episode three of Ether Hour. We talk about the new martyrs of Optina who were killed by a Satanist in the early 90s. It's a great episode. We recommend everybody go check that out. We'll have it linked below. But yeah, no, we we can only know exactly what that is going to entail. But it seems that we're moving to the next stage of some of these prophecies being the actual quote-unquote falling of some of these holy sites. You know, some of the grace leaving Ukraine, some of the real persecutions happening, perhaps certain levels of repentance not occurring and it's um it's something that's very very tragic to see but again if you look at all the videos metropolitan pavel you know he has a big smile on his face so for those involved personally in this you know this can only serve ultimately as a as a cross to bear to receive greater rewards in heaven so we're all praying for that
1: yeah that's right and you know metropolitan pavel is a good example a christ-like example given to us in this modern world unlike perhaps some of the more uh Politicized figures in the West, or you know, today facing persecution, you know, can be compared to Christ in various means, which probably would be inappropriate. For example, you know, if people say that Andrew Tate is innocent, etc., um, being paraded around as a Christ-like figure, or even more aptly named today. Donald J. Trump, of course, the former president of the United States, facing an indictment charge, you know, based on fraudulent use of you know commercial funds, campaign funds, and now, of course, compared to uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in by the media in America, at least by some of the right-wing conservative sources, uh, which, frankly, we think is slightly inappropriate because you know it's just a legal procession here; it's not really, um, it's neither here nor there. Like he is not going to face prison time or anything. So, compared to some of the persecutions going on, I think what Trump. Trump is facing will have a great spillover into ukraine let's not forget trump the schism did occur under his presidency so trump's impact on geopolitics on international relations on the world of orthodoxy is quite is quite great a lot happened during his previous presidency and this could impact i suppose his future re-election and trump has made a lot of
0: noise about how he could have prevented the war and how he would have given certain land to putin and i'm sure trump would have easily handled this better than the biden administration but Who knows if he would have ultimately just kicked the can down the road, ceded some land that ultimately still other parts would have needed liberating later. So, you know, that's all kind of neither here nor there. But ultimately, the Trump indictment is really just doing nothing but shoring him up total support to achieve total victory in the Republican primary in 2024. I don't see anybody winning in the face of this. I still... And more skeptical about the general. I don't necessarily see how he wins. I wouldn't be surprised if he somehow pulled it off, but I don't just necessarily see how it's going to happen. You know, maybe something, some crazy Rubicon crossing happens and he, you know, actually responds to some of this ridiculousness. And maybe this is the last presidential election. Who knows? But, you know, that's getting into, again, skeptical territory. But if Trump is to come back into power, perhaps it may be better for the multipolar world. And maybe we'd push back, the hot World War Three, but again, a lot of that also depends on that Turkish election that's coming up in many ways. I still think it's even possibly more important than 2024 itself, which, you know, I know that's saying a lot, but I, I do believe that. So we're, of course, going to be watching closely. We don't know if Trump's actually going to get handcuffed as the time of this recording It has yet to happen. We've seen a lot of cool AI of him, you know, running from NYPD in the street and then and some of them he's strapped up himself so we'll be watching closely of course but there there's also a lot of other analysis on on this subject from you know people in DC and New York there's always drama within the police departments and the because this is like some bizarre local prosecutor stuff so it's all very it's all very hodgepodge
1: yeah, and of course, and we're not stating that Trump is a beacon of orthodoxy or even Christian morality of any sort. If anything, this particular scandal even arose from his association with a former uh, American porn star, uh, Stormy Daniels, and you know them having a sexual affair outside of you know, Trump's marriage. He was married to Melania, and like uh, Trump, and a year later, of course, this sexual scandal comes up. He uses campaign funds allegedly to pay the prostitute off, and you know, we're talking six figures, and this cascades into the current lawsuit and the indictment he's facing at the moment. So it's all sexual sin, which leads to to this sort of event. And, you know, so let's just keep that in mind. It's not exactly a Christian morality that uh, has led to his persecution. So comparing him to Christ, I think is slightly inappropriate. But Trump's presidency was a very interesting one for the Orthodox Church. I think... Most people haven't really analyzed it too much in depth. At least, I know Jay Dyer has touched upon certain factors, including the association of Mike Pompeo, Trump's uh, director of CIA during the beginning of his term, and later promoted to the Secretary of State between 2018 and 2021. And Mike Pompeo, um, his participation in the Trump, uh, at least in the Trump Department in the cabinet, has been quite active. He met up with Patrick Bartholomew multiple times uh, throughout the throughout the um, presidency and almost single-handedly essentially promoted the Ukrainian schism and the schism between the EP and the Russian Orthodox Church during that Trump presidency. So whether or not Trump knew this was taking place and knew that, say, there was a schism brewing in the Orthodox Church, does he even necessarily know how important Orthodoxy is in Ukraine? All these questions we didn't really receive answers for um, during the presidency itself and even afterwards. Trump really doesn't associate or speak to many Orthodox people besides maybe Vladimir Putin or some of the local bishops. But even then it's all, it's mostly uh, networking kind of associations. We haven't seen any photographs of say Trump visiting an Orthodox church, similar to how we've seen uh, politicians from other countries, like for example, uh, Bashar al-Assad visiting the Antiochian Orthodox folks in Damascus and actively, you know, being interested in participating, kind of even attending liturgy as a spectator and kind of you know witnessing it in person we haven't seen that from Trump. So Trump's presidency did kind of impact the church in a negative fashion in that the schism, what we're seeing now, the persecution, it has all been led on from Mike Pompeo's actions alongside the EP, alongside the uh, false metropolitan epiphany of Kiev, and some of those uh, degenerate CIA agents who participated in this uh, bloodletting of a spiritual scale in that um, heartland of orthodoxy, which is Ukraine. And of course, naturally, the second, I suppose, in chapter of Trump's involvement would would involve Israel itself. So recognition of the Golan Heights, recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, at least the diplomatic capital where the U.S. embassy was moved. All of these things, of course, bring across a certain uh, an an air of. Of es- eschatology, a sort of ending of the world, uh, an Armageddon being planned up in the Golden Heights, where you know the field of Megiddo is located in the northern Israel. Very end of the world type imagery is given to us, and Trump's involvement with the Israeli lobby through his son-in-law Jared Kushner, who married son's daughter, uh, Trump's daughter, is is very heavy. So yeah, and frankly, even today, like what w- what we're seeing from the Golden Heights is it's a bridgehead from which Israel is bombing Orthodox, mostly Orthodox and mostly Muslim uh, Damascus. Of Bashar al-Assad's Syria. So Trump's involvement, not necessarily pro orthodox even though, of course, let's give him kudos and give him praise to where it belongs. He did usher in the banning of abortions across the US, or at least the federal sort of, you know, he did shut down Roe v. Wade for his Supreme Court appointees, which is one of the great achievements. So the sacrifices to Moloch and Bahal have stopped, at least, and now they're based on a state-by-state basis. And it's not really a, um, it's not really a federal court decision anymore, which is a positive development, I think. But Conrad, I'm sure you have a few things to say about the Trump presidency or the or what this indictment could lead. You know, what could his second term of Trump, I guess, uh, present to us in a geopolitical sense?
0: Well, I think you mentioned Israel and everything. And of course, what he did in Israel could also, from a church perspective, be viewed as perhaps emboldening some of these people, these settlers, these Zionists that have committed violence against the Orthodox Church than there and in these regions, in the Golan Heights and in Gaza, in the West Bank. So we recommend if everyone wants to hear more about that, listen to episode four, the latest episode of Ether Hour, which we talk all about that sort of stuff. But for all that stuff as well, again, I'm not making anything, any accusations. Other people have made threads about it that I you know, have read and looked at. But with some of the Trump stuff, remember, just be careful. You know, the people talk about the Antichrist being this kind of leftist, you know, progressive figure, that'll be kind of obvious. Remember, the idea of the Antichrist from the right, you know, that's that's something to fear. And I'm not saying Trump's the Antichrist, but when you see, you know, Israeli newspapers calling him the king of Israel and printing gold coins with him and Cyrus's head on them. And again, listen to our episode about Israel, we kind of talk about the temple and the Sanhedrin and what some of the people there and Chabad Lubavitch are trying to do. And, you know... Who are some of Habad Lubavitch's bibich's representatives? Uh, Jared Kushner, his family, Sheldon Adelson, who bankrolled Trump's campaign—they're all friends with Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, they made deals on 666 Park Avenue. You could do more research on this yourself. But again, this is all this is all relevant stuff. And again, I may still end up voting for Trump 2024. I think he may be the best option for this country. But you know, there's there's you know we put not our trust in princes, as they say, especially not someone who. You know, especially someone that's not the czar, What's us not the anointed emperor, let's put it that way. But another th- thing in the Trump presidency, I think, that was going better than in the Biden administration was the economy, was the status of the dollar, was in general how America was respected on the world stage. And right now we're undergoing, we're just witnessing de dollarization happening directly before our very eyes. There's just the amount of, the sheer amount of just shifts in the, in the world currency market and in how trade is conducted between nations and energy is traded and, and LNG and gas and oil is purchased. It's it's, it's crazy. I mean, I mean, just for just a few examples, India is working with 18 other countries to do trade directly in rupees. These include not only neighbors like Bangladesh and developing countries in Africa, but also staunch U.S. allies and vassals like Germany, U.K., and New Zealand. Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, and Thailand now have a digital payment system that enables settlements entirely in local currencies. For the first time, China just bought liquefied natural gas from the UAE using entirely yuan. Uh, 15% of China's trade and cross-border payments are already happening in yuan. Kenya's president announced that Saudi Arabia and the UAE will sell oil for Kenyan shilling. A whole bunch of other relations between Kenya, Iraq, Egypt has joined the BRICS bank, this is a great one. Indonesia, their president has told their people to stop using Visa and MasterCard. I believe they're considering banning it outright for their own local uh local alternatives because they're totally spooked about what the u s and other countries did to Russia during the sanctions and how Visa and MasterCard were able to shut down their services and kind of cripple a few different markets for a brief period before they could come up with an alternative and Of course, Brazil, you know the largest country in South America, they're enabling yuan payments and this all comes on the heels of the Iran Saudi Arabia peace agreement and uh you know reopening of relations brokered by China and we of course now see Iran and Israel having flare-ups more than usual in Syria of course where China and Iran have also been great supporters of Bashar al-Assad so this de-dollarization is really is really crazy and again remember the US effectively went to war with Saddam Hussein because of a lot of his Trades with Iran for oil In non-dollars and their threatening of The petrodollar's hegemony so this Really is huge and is putting us back to a time Well before you know a lot of people were Born today from a global currency And international relations perspective
1: Yeah that's right it seems That we are entering this brave new world Which isn't really dependent on the US Petrodollar's hegemony We're not quite there yet because most countries of course Still hold the US dollar as its kind of Reserve you know, countries actually hold reserves of US dollars instead of gold these days in order to kind of back up their local currency. Um, they not just the local currencies, but also their reserves in the country supplies in case of economic turmoil. So the dollar is still the m- very dominant hegemonic force we see in the world today but slowly the of course the euro being second most used in the world uh, of course held as well in large capacity even in russia itself but also the chinese yuan rising up to the occasion rupees of course are following along and rubles also seen down there so kind of these brics countries are developing this a closer association with the Chinese Yuan really leading the charge. But the Yuan does have a long way to go. It is about maybe used in about a one-eighth capacity to the US dollar. So, you know, it's not exactly uh, it's not exactly right biting at the heels of the US dollar at the moment. But this expansion into the Middle East, especially as Conrad mentioned, just the that triangle of China, Iran, which is Persia and also Saudi Arabia forming, is not just a soft power for it, but an actual palpable economic Threat to the U. You, um, you know the whole petrodollar system, which is dependent upon U.S.-Saudi collaboration. So essentially, the Saudis, the Saudi Prime Minister Prince Salman, is showing that well, despite all these incredible agreements that Saudi Arabia has with the United States. It's uh, It could act in both capacities. It can both have agreements with the states as well as China at the same time. There's nothing really preventing it from having this multilateral collaboration like in both ways. Similar to how Russia would be selling its gas to both Europe at one point and China on the other hand. And, you know, in fact, uh, are, are you know, essentially two sides of the same coin. We see a lot of countries benefiting and thinking about themselves first rather than thinking about associating with this world, uh, you know, this world economy associated and run by the United States. Very positive developments, generally speaking. Of course, the Russian ruble is experiencing very high inflation rates, close to 11% at this point. Probably the sanctions, as well as some of the economic emergency measures taking place in Russia, the Russian economy is still in this transition mode. And also just the fact that, as Conrad mentioned, you know, the the in the in the indonesian uh president joking about russian funds being frozen but just to kind of understand the scope putin did mention in his recent speech the number of funds the west has frozen from russia is it would, would amount to over 200 billion us dollars so if you can put that into perspective here the us over these last I don't know, 14, 15 months, has donated to Ukraine, or donated in, in military as well as humanitarian aid, close to $150 billion, as well as other countries. All, all in all combined would amount to somewhere close to $300 billion. And the funds frozen from Russia, at least by US trade funds, US banks, uh, also amounts to that exact number. So Russia, in fact, it's almost as if Russia is paying for the destruction of its interests in Ukraine. Through its own currency, all these funds that are frozen, so it's a it's a real threat at least to the world, being associated with uh, funds such as the IMF, taking these international European American loans. It's uh, there, there's a huge implication long term, and frankly, I I think myself and Conrad we do welcome this multipolarity because moving away from the progressive powers of the world to a more 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 sensible backing, you know, with China, with India, with these more traditional economies. I think it it will improve at least the not just the economical kind of relations of world powers but also the culture in the world no no longer will, will the countries need to associate themselves with whatever degeneracy is happening within the United States or Europe there'll be a kind of uh this wall separating Um, the various second world and rising countries and these first world progressive holes in which Nashville shootings occur and where Christian children and religious traditional children are getting killed. And frankly, that culture needs to be isolated and frankly destroyed within within itself, kind of, yeah, as a disease.
0: And I think with the proper management internally and the proper direction and the proper, you know, strong man coming and making things right, this de-dollarization could very much serve to benefit the people of America, to bring about a more America-first economy, to bring about an American sphere of influence that's more realistic and more close to our borders and not far-flung and um, happening to always coincide with destroying Orthodox civilization, whether it be in Serbia or the Middle East or Russia or Belarus or Georgia or wherever it is that we feel intent on pushing, but sex. But I think one of the places where, you know, the US influence shows, but is also kind of the US's allies' influence is even waning as Iran really rises. Is in Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is, it seems that these countries may be about to go to war again. Which, for those who don't know, before Ukraine, the kind of war in the 2020s that had really gotten hot was Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the Nagorno Karabakh war in the early 2020s, which I had covered on my American Byzantine newsletter. But it seems like now that's about to go hot. Iran is really pledging support for Armenia as Azerbaijan kind of moves forward and encroaches on the disputed region, Artsakh slash Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, that is legally recognized as Azerbaijan, but for decades has been occupied and populated entirely by Armenians and has entire Armenian cities. And of course, they're also supported by Russia. Russian peacekeepers have brokered the ceasefire between Azerbaijan and Armenia as they consider close relations with both of those important, but again, Azerbaijan is like a giga ally of Israel, who of course are mortal enemies with Iran, and Azerbaijan and Iran have their own border disputes, so ultimately it shapes up to Syria and Iran being very much against Azerbaijan and Israel. And for my take, I think ultimately it, we may ultimately still see Russia shift against Azerbaijan again, but Dmitry, I'm curious to your thoughts about the the impending caucuses war and whether this will spill into a second front, what this has to say about world war three, like where is this going?
1: I think unfortunately just the amount of contradictions, it's kind of like a Gordian knot we see. Um, in this region, where these countries have such uh, long, long-reigning uh, upsets and contradictions amongst themselves, that not much provocation is needed from the outside. You don't need much provocation from the United States or Israel or other actors in order for to send these countries into um, at least bilateral or multilateral wars amongst themselves, as we saw in the Nagorno-Karabakh region, which was uh, essentially a dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan over this, essentially just this land where. Um, which was historically, you know, it belonged to both communities at one point. Both the Armenian Apostolic Christians and the Azerbaijani Muslims at least felt that they had some sort of, you know, had some sort of historical conditions to live in this land. But long term, long term prospects, of course, are quite negative, given that Azerbaijan, in and of itself, despite having the majority Eastern Orthodox Christian population out of the three, compared to Iran and Armenia, which Armenia, the Apostolic Christians there aren't considered members of that large orthodox eastern correct church which we attribute ourselves to and which we speak about quite often the apostolic orthodox of armenia very different and that particular church which say kim kardashian belongs to it is very uh, separate and it's monophysite very similar to the copts of egypt and the copts uh, you know in in ethiopia all well, those christian communities very different and of course this is more of a theological discourse here but just the fact that azerbaijan itself as a country is is right just north of Iran, and it is Iran's, I suppose, like a needle in Iran's back. It is, uh, many Iranians consider Azerbaijan to be, uh, it's you know, territory which should belong to Persia and Iran. And historically, it was an Iranian province up in the north, adjacent to Georgia and the Caspian Sea, there. And I think what, what, uh, the, how at least the world powers, those who are opposed to Iran, how they see the situation is Iran. needs needs to be provoked by a power similar to how Ukraine provoked Russia. So Azerbaijan theoretically is the Ukraine of Iran and Persia. It is that provocateur, it is that power which can be enforced, strengthened against the rising Iran and Persia, which at the moment, as we just said, is being uh, cemented and and being improved and uh, enhanced by the BRICS economies. And Iran's potential membership in BRICS will, of course, bring about huge upsets for the Western world order. But yes, Having Iran and Azerbaijan go at it in a very Ukraine-Russian fashion, like a special military operation from Iran to sort of secure the Azerbaijani borders there, it will lead, of course, to great turmoil in the Middle East. And Iran only recently, not even 40 years ago, went through a tremendously gigantic war with millions of people, hundreds of thousands of people dead. The Iran-Iraq war, which took place between 1980 and 1988, fortunately, kind of ended in a stalemate. Of course, Iraq, later destroyed by the United States in 2003, really didn't really have a chance to reconcile. And now Iraq, of course, is a wasteland, of course, controlled by ISIS and other negative factors and you know, a US-controlled puppet government there adjacent to Kuwait. But nevertheless, the Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Iran triangle, there is a there is a way to assess this geopolitically. But we also, I think, Conrad, do need to speak about, I guess, the orthodoxy here. Like, how does the orthodox church play into this particular equation?
0: No, it is relevant. And of course, you've mentioned how there have been, you know, Orthodox soldiers blessed by Orthodox bishops to fight for Azerbaijan, which is important to take into account. But again, with Armenia, I think, I think I'm think i honest enough to admit that we could, it would make sense ultimately with Armenia being a member of the CSTO, historically an ally of Russia, a Christian population, it would be easy to side with them in some of these conflicts, especially as Turkey, you know, encroaches on them in some ways in the Greek question as they were all kind of you know persecuted and genocided around the same time out of those regions but Pashinyan and some of these liberals and in, in armenia despite the russians literally being the peacekeepers in the region seem intent on stabbing them in the back and pushing their loyalty and wanting to become like another georgia which is just disgusting i would almost i'd be okay with it if the people hadn't just let him stay in power for so long he just doesn't go away
1: yeah i think uh I'll just, I guess, break down for the listeners, for those interested, um, just the breakdown of the Orthodox Christian situation in Armenia, because a lot of people say they get confused. They mentioned the Apostolic Orthodox Church there, and they think it's part of the Eastern Orthodox conglomerate of local churches. But in fact, it is not. It is anti-Calcedonian. It is against the Fourth Ecumenical Council. And it really has broken off from us even before the Roman Catholics did. So, so the Armenian situation is very interesting. So the total number of Orthodox Christians... In Armenia is just just under fifteen thousand people in total. Very small number. If you can just take into account the fact that America itself has close to five or six million Eastern Orthodox people, but compare that to fifteen thousand in Armenia only. It's a very small amount. And majority of them are either local Armenians or Russians, and most of the Russians are immigrants or those who stayed for business reasons after the fall of the Soviet Union. So they're being led by one particular bishop who doesn't even live there, frankly, the Archbishop Leonid Gorbachev. Yes, I know, the last name, given that these are former Soviet countries related to the Soviet bloc is very apt. But Archbishop Leonid, in fact, you may have heard about him recently because he was promoted to the Exarch of Africa's position by the Russian Orthodox Church. Yes, it's just the same bishop. So he seems to be at least the skilled missionary bishop of the Russian Orthodox Church who's being sent to all these uh, provinces abroad to govern church relations. And he's officially the bishop of the, what is called the Yerevan Armenia Diocese of the Russian Church. Uh, Altogether, there there are eight local parishes in Armenia belonging to the Russian Church and five priests to serve there. So in fact, a very small diocese in and of itself uh, just under 15,000 people in Armenia belonging to the Orthodox Church considered very um, a, a very small minority, even even less than some of the. Uh even less than some of the Muslim communities living in Armenia. But what's uh, what's kind of apt, at least recently, is that the fact that the Russian diocese, this Yerevan Armenia diocese of the Russian church, was recognized only on the 23rd of March, 2023, at least officially registered in the Armenian census. So now, I guess the Russian priests will have um, some sort of tax-exempt status on their parishes, and it's legally registered by the Russian government. And, of course, given the recent ICC statements by uh, Pashinyan and some of the negative... Uh, Negativities. this really hasn 't affected the Orthodox Church in Armenia in a bad light, but mind you the church in Armenia is a minority when it whereas compared to what Conrad just said remember the the Bishop of Baku and the Bishop of the caspian sea that 's his total that 's his, that's his title has blessed the Azerbaijani orthodox people to fight in the military in this uh, nagorno karabakh war, which took place a few years ago, and the total number of Orthodox Christians in Azerbaijan greatly surpasses that of Armenia, um, just roughly at around 200,000, with seven churches in total, so roughly the same number of churches. One diocese, the Bishop of Baku, recently reposed Alexander. At the moment, I believe the there is no reigning bishop in Baku, but it's kind of being administered for a for a conciliar fashion from Moscow. This this diocese in Baku is, uh, of course, was opened around the same time in Armenia, so it's it's lasted for about a hundred years. But the number of Christians there greatly surpasses that of Armenia, and uh, Azerbaijani Orthodox community is um, is quite uh, quite strong. I would say there are probably better prospects for it than say the Armenian factor, which again. Uh, From what I've been reading uh, based from years ago, uh, there's a book by a higher monk, David, who speaks about church history in the Armenian region after the fall of the Byzantine Empire. And he mentions that there were at least 60 ancient Orthodox churches belonging to the Greek, the Georgian and the Russian church in Armenia, uh, at least in this region, and Nagorno-Karabakh, 60 of them. But since the twentieth century, since the Soviet era, most of the churches most of these sixty churches have been either abandoned, destroyed, or completely left and you know, just fallen apart throughout time. So today the Russian Church only has eight churches and most of them are newly built. So there are just these ancient Orthodox Christian places completely abandoned, left desolate and destitute. If you can just imagine all the all the relics lost and it's it's a huge travesty. Orthodoxy needs to make a comeback to Armenia uh, the apostolic Orthodox Christians do need to be enlightened there, but it does seem like a really long-term project. And in fact, another war between Azerbaijan and Armenia could, of course, put a, a huge, uh, I suppose, barricade. And uh, these are huge hurdles in the way of any sort of missionary effort. And notice how we didn't bring up any Georgian Orthodox Christians uh, in- influences or even the Ecumenical Patriarch or the Church of Antioch, which are very busy at the moment kind of reigning in their own diocese. And, of course, the Ecumenical Patriarch, you can't expect him to be get involved in anything Anatolian, anything uh, related to, say, the Turkic or the Armenian community. It's simply a bit out of his reach at the moment. He's more interested in Ukraine and in you know, the Lithuanian exarchate rather than you know promoting uh, orthodoxy and missionary work in Armenia. So it's left up to the Russian church to you know uh, spread the faith of Christ over there. You know, when you mention this kind
0: of these intra-Christian and then even intra-Orthodox and, you know, these these disputes between, you know, as admittedly we would say those Oriental Orthodox, as they are called, the Ethiopians, the Copts, they look the most similar, I guess, of any other confession to us, Eastern Orthodox. So it's more understandable for people to be confused. But in that same regard, I find it interesting in Islam, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Iran, Syria, even these countries are, Again, the closest thing to the Great Schism, I guess you could say, in Islam is the Shia-Sunni split, where you know those of the Sunni uh, branch believe that Abu Bakr was the true successor to the Prophet Muhammad, whereas those in the Shia tradition, mostly being in Iran and parts of Iraq and Syria, believe that Ali was the true successor of the Prophet Muhammad and the caliphate and was should have inherited it and whatnot. Abu Bakr was the true inherited at first, of course, and the Arabic world has now thus been Sunni ever since. Some downplay the differences more than others. Others will kill you for it, of course, we see in the Islamic world. But we see Turkey is a Sunni country, very secular, of course. But, of course, the rest of the Arabic world, and then even Indonesia and these other large Muslim countries are Sunni. But the Shia world is Iran, and then a lot of the Shia areas in Iraq uh, I believe even Pakistan has them Afghanistan, Syria these all have very large Shia regions as well, but the other major Shia- co- country is Azerbaijan, despite the fact that Azerbaijan is not an Arab country and is very close is literally just little Turkey who is a Sunni country, so it kind of shows you even in the Muslim world some of these some of these alliances transcend the sort of obvious religious alliances and in this case actually just go with ethnicity being a Turkic group as opposed to being this they're, they're mortal enemies of Iran the other Shia power the Persians and they would all want to even claim part of Iran as southern Azerbaijan and of course I think Iran would want to claim parts of Azerbaijan as northern Iran and this is uh why Iran would then want to side with Christian Armenia of all people to agitate on their behalf but I want to talk about a few things in America, but before that, maybe we'll do a brief sit-rep on Ukraine. You know, we were a little early on the call, but we now see, you know, PMC Wagner flags flying at the center of Bakhmut. It seems that it has fallen, and we're hearing reports that even the West is really running out of shells to send Ukraine. It seems that they're kind of running out of some of these major forms of ammunition to keep up the... The semblance of a front. So, Dimitri, do you have anything to say on the situation in Ukraine before we start to wrap this up? And I talk about the restrict act and some of this crazy new digital Patriot Act stuff.
1: I think on the Ukrainian front, we some of our predictions have have at least not been met. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of predictions were wrong. The Russia has not actually initiated a um, you know an assault of any of any kind. In fact, there are there's more. Sp- There's more people at least discussing, uh, including Ukrainian politicians, discussing the fact that Ukraine will mount a large counteroffensive into the Donetsk uh, Oblast region and Zaporozhye, kind of pushing Russia back. You know, trying to get Melitopol back in the Zaporozhye region, and Bakhmut at the moment is the great stalemate. Uh, siege has been going now for four to five months, at least the, since December, and it's it's essentially this breaking point now. You know, Zelensky personally has stated less than a week ago that if Bakhmut falls, uh, some of his uh, co-patriots in his party will be calling for a peace and he says ukrainian the ukrainian reputation around the world will depend on the fact of uh bakhmut's bakhmut falling into either russian or ukrainian hands and frankly at the moment as conrad mentioned the Bakhmut is being held very strongly by Russia. The majority of at least 60 70% of it is being held by the PMC Wagner, the mercenary group headed by Yevgeny Prigozhin. And Prigozhin himself, appearing in many many interviews and you know, just sitting at desks with a mic, at least talking to journalists, is very open. He's in fact probably the most open person on the ground uh, as a military commander, somebody actually in charge of what's going on, a decision maker in the Russian. Uh, from the Russian perspective, giving us the most info as to what's happening. And he's quite active. Of course, the artillery, um, the lack of artillery shells, that issue has been resolved. PMC Wagner is pushing the Ukrainians further back. Um, Russian, the Russian military is not supporting it too much, besides artillery logistics and some of the various volunteer groups. For example, the Cossacks, the Netsk People's Republic, Lugansk People's Republic do have forces, around Bakhmut area as well. So a huge bloodthirsty battle, already the greatest battle of the 21st century. Bakhmut is, will go down in, in the history books as one of the greatest sieges of the 21st century, possibly, um, you know, only surpassed by whatever may happen next after it falls, because, you know, we've spoken about sieging some of these greater cities and just how, you know, how strongly will the Ukraine be holding, say, a Zaporozhye or a Kharkov or a Kiev even. It's, it's insane, just the amount of people they're willing to throw at the russians in Bakhmut, and with, the numbers here of course are quite immense they're throwing away the ukrainians are sending conscripts with less than six months training into into the city of Bakhmut to hold down key positions and six months military training as most of you may know having served in the military even in the u.s military which has different criteria and uh you know programs but 6 months is really not enough to get a soldier up and ready and to for him to know say first aid and all these various equipment types and know how to shoot all of the all of the guns and how to even work in a team so these young Ukrainian boys are being sent to die and uh, the Russians are sending in trained mercenaries in fact it's turning out very negative for Ukraine and Bakhmut may be falling any week now we've been saying this for a while but it's looking quite dire for the Ukrainian side
0: oh, it really seems to me i've heard reports Of three weeks to some points on the front line of people being having trained for that long, which is just criminal. At that point, it's just literally just sending people in to die, not even knowing which way is up or down. But yeah, back mood again. We could hope that once it does fall here, hopefully in the next few weeks, that it can really initiate some change, maybe some even something up to the form of regime change in Kiev, so that we can really see this thing start to start to move forward in a positive direction for the Russian speaking population. Of Ukraine for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, for the revived Anshin regime, for the world, for peace, for Christianity, for everything. So, I think that we can all we can all hope for that. But again, we're very much prepared for for this to not only rage on within Ukraine to to the to the end of its borders, but also ultimately to rage into a hot World War III where everybody is forced to pick a side. But when it comes to the U that will of course involve China and the US and when it comes to all of that, we've seen so much bellicose rhetoric about China. We've seen the people talking about banning TikTok in the house, Rand Paul blocking Josh Hawley from doing that, respect to Rand, letting us keep our TikTok content. You know, I'm personally against the TikTok ban. I get that there's, you know, some cringe on there, but ultimately there's also a lot of people are getting red pilled. Maybe World War Now will be on TikTok someday. But we have these bills going through, one of them being the Restrict Act. There's some other one. I can't remember its name. But these things are insane. This is like the Patriot Act 2.0. I believe one of of them will make it illegal to use a VPN. It basically gets to the point where all communication has to be under the direct purview of of all sorts of government agencies. All of your transactions are going to have to be approved. Your digital transactions will have to be approved by all sorts of things. I mean... The government will get total control of basically all of the Internet of Things itself, like cars, ring cameras, refrigerators, Alexa devices. And like a lot of these things would then breaking some of these rules and using VPNs and covering things up would result in like twenty year prison sentences. This is like total it's like total, you know, I don't want to say like nineteen eighty four, but it's like, you know, think you've heard the Patriot Act. This is just taking it into like, you know, the era that we live in now with like phones and social media, it's making it insane. So Again, don't fall for all the anti-China ops. A lot of people are like, oh, they've got the social credit score. The whole social credit score thing is totally overblown. What you see in those CBS programs is localized private things that people actually opt in for when you see the pictures of people on bus stops. That is not some government forcing it upon the entire population of the PRC. That's ridiculous propaganda. But they have you believe that, so you don't notice effectively the same thing that they do to you stateside with stuff like this, under the guise of protecting you from China and banning TikTok. These bills don't have anything to do with TikTok, which I'm still against banning. So don't fall for this. Please stop falling for the anti-China psyop. Again, I'm not saying you have to like China, but a civilizational revival of the Han ethno-state in its national socialist form is fundamentally not your enemy. Your enemy is in the White House and Tel Aviv and the city of London and maybe even in Ukraine. So, you know, just keep that in mind, I think.
1: Yeah, and the crackdown of course continues against China also in the cryptocurrency space. If we're speaking about economics here, so the US regulators sue crypto exchange Binance, which is perhaps the best the the either the best or the second best, the most used cryptocurrency exchange in the world. And it's, you know, its boss is Chinese, Changpeng Zhao. And the US personally sues him at least for, you know, trading inappropriately. Of course, all that will come of this will be a fine, but it does send fears down the spine of a lot of people involved in, uh, you know, in the cryptocurrency sphere as in, in, you know, kind of being involved in that, that the US is cracking down on the free transfer of currencies around the world. You know, just the fact that Bitcoin and all these other currency tokens are used without any sort of government control. And there is this, uh, it is a wild west out there really. And, And the US government is cracking down. Of course, the Person leading the charge alongside the SEC, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, is Senator Elizabeth Warren, the former um, runner-up for the uh, U.S. election, which lost the you know Pocahontas as Trump once called her. So uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, leads a group of senators who are essentially planning an anti-cryptocurrency bill, an, anti- an anti-Bitcoin bill in the U.S. Um, in 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 the U.S. political system, this hasn't really eventuated, but the rhetoric has been extremely negative. And how this, of course, affects world economics is well, as the world moves away from the petrodollar, there will be a need for a certain internal control. And so, when the U.S. does move its currency away from the fiat which, of course, is faulty and essentially make-believe Two or more blockchain-sustained coin and currency really changes, and we're talking about 10, 20 years down the line, there will be this need for uh, more control over, say, some of these online tokens such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. And also XRP Ripple, which is currently still being sued by the SEC, and that particular lawsuit hasn't really um, come to pass yet. So there are some big changes in the US government, essentially in its Democrat sort of left-wing form, is cracking down on online currencies very steadily so and again they're kind of pairing it up with anti-chinese rhetoric saying the chinese are using bitcoin and tiktok and all these platforms and online agencies to negatively impact u.s society when in fact what is in fact negatively impacting u.s society is some of these destructive cultural traits like what we see in nashville uh tennessee unfortunately and god help all those families and uh, rest in peace to all those killed. But those the cultural influences are, in fact, a lot worse than anything happening in the cryptocurrency sphere or uh, the Chinese weather balloons or even you know, TikTok. As much as TikTok does, as Conrad said, contribute to degeneracy, you know all these social media platforms do, and so they all should be taken with a grain of salt and critically assessed, at least by some proper conservative regime.
0: Well, America really is entering its hell world phase. I mean, along all of this, we also saw the, I believe, the conviction of Ricky Vaughn, who, if those don't know, Douglas Mackey, going by Ricky Vaughn. I used to follow him back in the good old days of Twitter before all the good posters got banned. But Ricky Vaughn single-handedly influenced the Trump election. He was voted, I think, one of the 100 most influential accounts and just online presences in the in the 2016 election by Time magazine. It's like more influential than like multiple like notable left-wing websites. And so because of that, he was targeted, he was doxed. And he ultimately is getting sentenced to what could be up to like a decade in prison for just posting a meme on Twitter telling people to text a certain number to vote for Hillary Clinton. And they claim that this violated people's constitutional rights to vote. You can find dozens of examples of liberals doing the same thing with the joke about text this number to vote for Trump all around election day. So it's total political targeting, total nonsense. Ricky Vaughn was a great account. And they realized that he had an influence and he was based he wasn't afraid to, you know, do some naming. So I think he uh, he's, was then targeted by the regime, and now he's being made an example of. And sure, we have seen the release of Jacob Chansley, the Q Shaman. Baked Alaska has finally been released from federal prisons, so that's good and whatnot. But still, many j Sixers are still rotting away. And examples even like Jonathan Pentland, a bit of a different example. But the U.S. is not kind to good, hardworking American men. and instead. You know, seek to. we're seeing with this trans stuff, they're allowed to occupy the state capitals of Kentucky, the state capitals of Tennessee. They're treating the shooter as a victim. They're demanding that the news and law enforcement, quote-unquote, not misgender, you know, the victim, this this woman who thought she was a man, I guess, who knows. But it really just shows the idea. The White House, of course, we saw, whatever her name is, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the black White House lackey, she was talking about, we need to be with the transgender community because they're under attack right now. The White House and every corporation talk about trans day of visibility. It's just total hell world poo-poo pee-pee. Like, I don't even know what fucking country I live in. Sorry for the language, but, like, it's it's honestly gotten ridiculous. So, I mean, I, at this point I can just pray that, you know, it, it, it wakes so many people up to, to to the realities of the ethereal warfare of this world that they that they look for, look for truth in eternity and maybe can find holy orthodoxy because America is, is, is looming toward perdition faster than I thought possible. I'll just, I'll just say that much.
1: And of course this, uh, this great sort of fall is accompanied by lots of people who do kind of call out the degeneracy, at least publicly and on the internet. And they come from different perspectives and very various backgrounds. Like you see Sovereign Brown, Twitter, Chase, who's of course, inquiring into orthodoxy and God bless him for those efforts. And uh, Elijah Schaefer, Nicholas Fuentes, even uh, other interesting characters like Andrew Tate, recently released Alex Jones. All these people face various levels of censorship only because they address the current degeneracy from various angles. They're not even related to each other. They don't even have the same political views, and most of them don't even relate to orthodox Christianity in any way. In any way, Elijah Schaefer, of course, uh, commended, commending him for his inquiry efforts as well. But most of these folks. Uh, are of course the targets of you know the new world orders social media system and they are being shut down of course persecuted in their own way prosecuted in some capacities like alex jones you know owing billions of dollars having to declare bankruptcy essentially info wars website having you know having to shut down and you know there are we do have our own worries in this fight like jay dyer of course heavily censored demonetized on youtube uh you know has to move to rumble has to also uh, move kind of some of his content off off YouTube and off these mainstream media sites. So it's not like Orthodox Christians aren't affected by this. Yes, we are. Sometimes our clergymen are not even the ones with the largest accounts here. It's like we, the laity, in fact, who do speak to some of these people online, like we're the ones who actually take the brunt. And in fact, I think we prefer to do that too. Like myself and Conrad, you know, having the voices, having the at least the, the audience having the support as well on Twitter and other platforms speaking out for the clergy in terms of, you know, de- protecting the Orthodox position and the Orthodox conservative stance in this mainstream media world. We'd rather take the hits rather than the clergy get banned and persecuted and prosecuted any day of the week, I think. So it is, uh, it is kind of like our little sacrifice, I suppose, uh, especially during the time of Great Lent like this.
0: Dimitri, we're all happy for you to take like the vast majority of the NAFO Twitter cringe so we can just go into replies and just block everybody which is always quite the service but when it comes to Ukraine again very recently Mark Milley himself you know the white rage aficionado the big chubster said that Ukraine victory is not likely this year I'm not saying it can't be done I'm just saying it's a very difficult task which is a lot of a different tune than what we were hearing in the first you know six seven months of this of this war but No, we have to make sure that we're praying for the church in Ukraine. Again, as of the recording this, we've just seen Metropolitan Pavel sentenced to two months of house arrest and ankle-braceleted and everything. I don't know if they're going to find another place for him off-site to be his quote-unquote house. They might do that and then have that residence to enforce him to not come back to the monastery. I wouldn't be surprised if they pulled some devious nonsense like that. But please keep them all in your prayers. Pray for the whole unity of all the church. And pray that the Greek church, that Patriarch Bartholomew, Metropolitan Photos, the Patriarchate of Alexandria, Archbishop George of Paphos, that they would all realize the error of their ways and come to support the canonical church. I'll do the plugs and everything and let everybody go. If there's nothing else you have to say, Dimitri, I'll let you say what you must.
1: Yeah, I think everybody's just uh, taken these last two weeks of Great Lent and obviously the great last week coming up so easter will be upon us on the 16th of april this year so stay tuned um we will probably have an episode releasing around easter time we'll have a look just how schedule allows but uh do enjoy the last two weeks of great lent uh self-reflection of course uh as well as uh, strong fasting and prayer is is a great journeyman and alongside your life and you know you should be you should be praying very heavily not just for the church in ukraine but also for yourselves for your families for those close to around you and adjacent, those who have a direct impact upon your life. So definitely, um, you know, get the most out of these two last weeks of Lent because the world may be a different place by the time Great Lent is upon us next year in 2024. So I guess uh, those positive comments will kind of set us off for this week.
0: With all of that, be sure to subscribe to us on Substack .substack WorldWarNow.substack.com. We just released episode four of Ether Hour, a premium show. So if you are so inclined, To support us financially, you'll get access to all of those shows. Uncensored, we go off. This latest one we cover, Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land. Some controversial stuff, so be sure to check that out. There is a seven-day free trial, so don't hesitate to just check out the content. There's going to be more coming every week. Dimitri's got articles coming up on deck. They're going to be big. I've got some things in the works. Uh, Big episodes. We've got some live streams coming with David the real Med White about the Turkish elections so stay tuned for that guests coming may have a public ether hour episode actually coming up so keep your eyes on that and when that comes may have some premium world war now content so again big things in the works from everybody but again keep the Ukrainian Orthodox Church the Kiev Caves Lavra in your prayers we ask that God would turn you know this persecution into into fruit into Growth of the church, you know, so that words of people like Saint Paisios, Saint Joseph, Hezekas, Elder Ephraim, things that like America maybe Orthodox may come true based on, you know, the butterfly effect from such, from such things happening. But again, follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now T E L E. Follow me on Twitter, Gnomerad. Follow Dimitri O'Canonist. Follow us again. Subscribe to us on YouTube. We've posted some clips. We're trying to get clip. We've gotten some clips made from some very helpful people. You know who you are. Thank you very much for the help on the clips that we've posted on the channel. If you want things to send to people that aren't, you know, an hour, twenty minutes plus long, we know those are a bit long, so we can you can send those clips, give people a taste of taste of what they're missing. But with all of that, Dimitri, I'll let you send
1: us off. Yeah, thank you for all the support, guys. And of course, if you want to support us monetarily, the best way to do that would be, of course, to like the YouTube videos for the algorithm. And if you'd want to become a supporter and actively contribute to the operation and to spread the news and uh, the good word as well as some of the interesting information about geopolitics do subscribe to our world will now Substack, and that'll cost you a small fee but it does go a long way especially when everybody contributes and um, we will make big things happen in the future so definitely stay tuned thank you for the support guys god bless